sure prophecy. We come uh, to the Word of God once again, uh, turning to Isaiah chapter 42 to read this prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who doesn't raise his voice in the streets, but will not bruise a bru- a br- break a bruised reed or quench a smoking flax until he brings forth justice for truth. A prophecy that is fulfilled, Matthew reminds us, in the gracious but victorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's uh, read together from Isaiah chapter 42, and I'll read again just a little farther than what we're going to do today, but to put this whole uh, part before you about his tender mercy. Let's read together from Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will give you, uh, I will keep you rather and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house, I am the Lord. That is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we look once again to this gracious servant to behold the one in whom your soul delights, this gentle lamb that was slain, who nevertheless is appointed to bring justice unto victory on the earth. We pray that once again he would be greatly exalted in our midst and that you by this word, this prophecy, which you gave so many years before his coming, that you would inscribe the truth of these things on our very hearts, that we should rejoice and be glad that we have been here in the house of the Lord today and leave thanking and praising you for such a servant, such a Savior. What a wonderful promise and what a great God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all know what it is to be weak. Sometimes for extended periods in our lives, we know what it is to have little faith, to act foolishly, to struggle more or less unsuccessfully with our remaining corruptions and besetting sins. For obvious reasons, these things break down, discourage us, and today we'll be considering why such sins and weaknesses in the past, present, and future must not hinder us from going on to serve the Lord. 
Now, of course, it was sinners that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, as we read. But I want to remind you that God not only has come to save such people, but has chosen the weak, chosen such sinful people in order to use them mightily to demonstrate his own power and grace. And I'll give you a few examples as we begin. Last week, we read how the Lord called that wicked man called Saul of Tarsus, the chief persecutor of the church, to become his apostle to the Gentiles. Called, not just despite the fact that he was such a notorious sinner, but because he was such a notorious sinner to demonstrate his power and grace. Or you could read, for example, the list of Bible heroes in the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Sometimes that's called the Hall of faith, but you notice it's a very uneven list. Oh, there are exceptionally godly people, Abraham and Moses on the list, but then we find names like Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, not your typical Sunday school heroes at all. Do you remember their story? Gideon, who was hiding in a wine press when we meet him, so nervous to follow God's call to deliver Israel. No, I want a, I want a miracle first. Mm, maybe two miracles. He calls together a large army, and God says, no, 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 way too many people. I want a small, weak army so I can get the glory. Down it goes to 300 men whom God gives an, ex, an astonishing victory. And at the end of the story, well, Gideon has not learned all the lessons he should have. It says that Gideon made the gold into an ephod and set it up in his city of Orpha, and all Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. End of story. Oh dear, why is he on the list of heroes? Barak, who was told by Deborah the prophetess, the Lord has called you to deliver my people from the Canaanites. Um, Barak said, I, I don't want to go unless you go with me. Why, you wimp, she says. Uh, that's in the message translation. <laughs> she says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in this journey you're taking, for the Lord is going to hand Sisera into the hand of the woman. Samson, next. A man whose history shouldn't be discussed, even in polite company. His parents say, wouldn't you like a nice kosher Jewish girl? No, he says, I want a Philistine harlot. But we're told it was of the Lord because God wanted to pick a fight with the Philistines. He gets into a long-term relationship with this harlot that leads to his demise. And yet in his demise, he delivers Israel. Jephthah, next. What kind of man do we have here? A man who makes a, a rash vow. Oh God, if you will give me victory against the people of Ammon, I'm going to sacrifice whatever comes out of my door first when I get home. And when he comes back home to find his daughter coming out, he says, well, I'm a man of my word. These are the heroes? You say, what are such people as these doing in the hall of faith? Well, I assure you, they're not set forth as an example of godly living. In fact, they all suffered for their sins. But the point is, despite their manifold sinfulness and weakness, do you know what they all have in common? They all went on by faith. And God was pleased to be their God and to be with them. And it says even to turn their weakness into strength. I quote, 
What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. It doesn't say, go be a chicken like Barak. It says, remember that even such weak people were made strong by their faith in God. Jephthah, Samson, so weak, so sinful, we'll see them in heaven. And God was still the hero of their story. My point is, as we begin, weak believer, you are tempted to discouragement and despair and think, what could ever happen to a person like me? What can God do for a person like me? Well, God has put some men in the Bible exactly for your encouragement. In fact, Calvin makes this important comment. Thus, in all the saints, something reprehensible is ever to be found. Yet faith, though halting and imperfect, is still approved by God, and there is therefore no reason why the faults we labor under should break us down or dishearten us, provided we, by faith, go on in the race of our calling. That's the sermon today, brothers and sisters. There's always something reprehensible to be found. There is a limping and halting faith in every one of us. That should not break us down or dishearten us, provided we go on by faith in the race of our calling. Now, before I turn to the passage, as a reminder this summer, while people were traveling here and there and on vacation, we are considering some of the great ideas from some of the greatest Christian writers ever. We're currently in Richard Sibb's book, The Bruised Reed, which he wrote for the help of, and at the request of, weak Christians, he says on the title page. For in this beautiful prophecy of Isaiah that I read to you a moment ago, we find the fulfillment in our Lord Jesus, as Matthew reminds us, that we are being here compared to weak reeds. As I explained last time, the analogy, weak and wounded Yet we find our Savior described here as both tender and triumphant. And today we turn to the second part of verse 3 and see what this analogy has to do with us. Smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his, all, for his law. Well, some things are clear, but what is this matter of smoking flax? He will not quench. Let's consider this passage today from three points of view. First, the mixture of a Christian. Second, the marks of a Christian. 
And third, the motivation of the Christian. I'll try to explain it to you this way, and I hope this will be helpful to you. First, the mixture, the mixture of a Christian. In our day of LED light bulbs, uh, this imagery is unfamiliar. It's already a, a metaphor, but what is it even saying? Well, flax is what they used to use to make a wick on a lamp or a candle. And uh, um, smoking flax, as you'll know if you've ever burned a candle down to the end, is uh, what happens when a lamp or candle gets down. It's, it's, it's barely burning, a smoking wick that's casting only a dim light. The tender Savior has come to be the Savior even to such as you and I. That's what you and I are being compared to. There is light, but there is smoke. It burns, but it flickers. And we can, discouraged believers, can certainly identify with this imagery. We know that grace is mingled with corruption and like a low burning flame is accompanied by smoke, so we also feel ourselves at times kind of flickering. I remind you of the context in which this passage is quoted. We saw last time in the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus is dealing with the poor and needy, with uh, tender sinners, healing them on the Sabbath, uh, restoring them, dealing graciously with the poor and needy. Sibs writes, Grace is not only little, but mingled with corruption in us. And therefore, a Christian is said to be smoking flax. So we see that grace does not do away with corruption all at once, but some is left for believers to fight with. The purest actions of the purest men still need Christ to perfume them. And that is his office. Okay? Your best work still smells much of smoke. It's a mixture. This is the metaphor, similar to what we saw last time, but a different picture in order to press it home. So, for, uh, for example, in the, in, the, in the book of Revelation, as we read last Sunday evening, we read about some churches, seven churches that were represented as seven golden candlesticks or seven lampstands. Those lights, which you remember still had plenty of smoke, mixed in with that light. This is the story from the beginning to the end. David, acting so foolishly, sinfully, finds himself in the custody of the king of Gath, and he has to pretend to be insane to get free and to let spit roll on his beard and to scratch the doors so that the king finally says, what, what do I need more madmen for, right? Get him out of here, right? Uh, a lot of smoke there. But there was light also, because that was the occasion we read in which he wrote Psalm 34. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Or it says in another psalm, I said it in my haste, I'm cut off from your eyes. That's smoke. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried to you. Oh, love the Lord, you his saints. He preserves the faithful that's light. Wretched man that I am, says Paul. That's smoke. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. That is light. So it's a simple analogy. 
It's of the mixture that we represent, why we need a gracious Savior, because we have smoke mixed with light. But to change the picture, you know, a weak hand can still receive a rich jewel. And so it is that we, weak, smoky lights, if you like, are receiving grace then from Jesus, our tender shepherd. So that's the analogy, and I think that this is also the experience of every Christian every day, more or less. Because, you know, it says God has chosen the weak things of this world to put, a sh- to, put to shame the things that are mighty. He's chosen the base things of this world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him you are in Christ Jesus. Well, our God not only chooses, but uses and blesses the weak and makes his grace and victory shine forth in them. So, weak believer, I say to you, you find yourself in the very best of company. The Lord is not remotely done with you. If God had fully sanctified you on the same day that he justified you, well, you would never have known. You would never have believed what an inveterate sinner you are or what a glorious Savior you have in Jesus. He has left that mixture in you, some more, some less, some days more smoke, some days more light. But you should be thankful not only for the day he called you and saved you, but for every single day since. For we are like that smoking flax that he so carefully will not quench until he has sent forth his justice unto victory. My first point is simply explaining the metaphor, this mixture of a Christian. Now, since this mixture, of course, has a bad effect on us, it discourages us, from time to time may even lead us to despair or say with David, I'm cut off from your sight. We, we have to think through this a little more as we turn to the marks of a Christian. What does it mean that the Christian is so marked by a mixture? A little bit longer point now. In Sibs's day, in the, in the day of the Puritan movement in England, the church was still shaking off a very formal, that is to say, um, nominal Christianity of the Middle Ages. Uh, Several writers set out to distinguish true religion, saving religion from false, by listing out the marks of a true Christian, which makes perfect sense. Uh, There were several famous lists. One of the most famous is from William Perkins, professor at Cambridge, uh, head of Sibs. Um, I I won't read them all to you, but here's number, number seven. You can know that you're really a Christian, he says, if you have fled all occasions of sin and were always seriously endeavoring to live in newness of life. Well, surely the word is good, but that's not much comfort to so many of us who do not always bewail our sins, who do not always grieve over them, who do not always flee from every temptation or occasion for sin. 
Thomas Shepard made similar comments in his book, The Parable of the Ten Virgins, where he shows just how far some people can go in religion and still be hypocrites. You can go pretty far. And he lists the marks of all the people and how far you can go and still be a hypocrite. It uh, led the Scottish Free Church professor John Duncan to say tongue-in-cheek that he hoped one day he would be as righteous as one of Shepard's hypocrites. My, my point is, they were, they were doing an important work, showing people what a true, what true Christianity is, but doing so, so strongly and so, doing it in such a way that many people at the time were really struggling. You could read John Bunyan's account, for example, in his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, when early on in his Christian life, he was... He was just convinced for a long period of time there was no grace in him at all, that he'd probably committed the unpardonable sin. And an older Christian, when he broke his heart to him, told him he probably had committed it. Bunyan spent dark days. Sibs is going to approach it from a different point. From this mixture, point one arises the fact that the people of God have very different judgments of themselves, looking sometimes at the work of grace and sometimes at the remainder of corruption. And when they look upon that, they think they have no grace at all. Perkins and the others who were describing what is true and ought to be true is always true in some measure anyway of Christians did not put forward the mixture and, and Sibs will correct that. And before I give you his list, I want to say one more thing. I suppose that in that period of time, that was a greater danger for the godly to be so afflicted as Bunyan was. But I want to point out that we have the opposite danger today. That is to say that ungodly and unconverted people who have never known the Lord are gathered into churches and encouraged with a hope of everlasting life when there is no light and life in them at all. And complacent ministers address themselves every week in cold blood to perishing, hell-bound multitudes. So, you may need to hear the other danger. Perhaps there are people here who are concerned about you. who are constantly worried about your spiritual state because there's no light to be seen. There's no warmth. There's no fire. And there is a great tendency towards self-deception. Do not be deceived, the Bible says again and again. Do not be deceived. We read it last week. Do, not, do you not know the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God, and so forth. If you find yourself complacent but graceless, 
You need to recognize the other danger, to flee to Jesus and live. My point is, there are dangers on both sides, on the right hand and on the left. We are not to despair, and we are not to presume. Some people, especially the more tender among us, can only see the smoke. Some people, especially the hard heart, they don't even know there's no fire. You need to apply this to yourself. How can we know, Sib says, if there is any true holy fire in us, given all the smoke, given the corruption of our hearts? Well, Sibs has his own list. Fire comes with light, number one. Fire comes with light. Okay, there's still plenty of darkness in a Christian's understanding, but when grace comes into the heart, you can see things that other people can't see. Verse 1, you can behold God's servant. Or when Jesus asked Peter what the crowds were thinking. Who do crowds, who do men say that I am? He's like, um... Some say Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets, so forth. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God, Peter replied. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Jesus replied, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, which is in heaven. There are some things that we are confused about, me more than others, perhaps. But there are some things that are made perfectly clear. And if you have that sight of Christ, if you have that regard for God's word, God's revelation, that is the first mark, spiritual light. And if anyone does not regard God's word, Isaiah says it's because there's no light in them. Dull though we are, we have yet some clear light. Second, fire comes with heat. Not just light, but heat. And Sibs writes, light in the understanding produces the heat of love in the heart. Light in the understanding, heat of love in the heart. Do you have any love? Well, not as you should, of course, you say. For he is worth all the love that is in us, in heart and soul and strength and mind, of course. But the love that you have is from divine fire. And if that spark of love is in you, he will keep it. He will not quench it. He will fan it into flame. He will preserve it, even though at times the flame flickers low. Fire comes with light, and fire comes with heat. Third, Light is given to show us the way to walk. As I said earlier, there's a great difference between walking in the darkness and walking in the light. If we, have, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, the Bible says we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins and we have fellowship with one another. Well, Sib, Sib says, the light which some men have is like lightning. The light that some men have is like lightning. There's a sudden flash which just leaves you more in darkness. 
Maybe you can even love the light as it shines, but not as it discovers, uncovers, discloses, directs. The godly say, I want to know the way and I want to walk in it, however much a struggle it is, as Edward says, however unsuccessful I may be. Light shows you the way to walk. Are you walking in darkness or are you walking in the light? Number four, fire refines. You wouldn't throw out gold ore, would you? Say, well, it's not pure gold. Yeah, but it's extremely valuable. And you are valuable. You are precious to the Lord. And that's why this refining process keeps on going. The struggles in your life continue. And those whom he loves, it seems he refines especially, that you may come forth as gold. Fire refines. Fifth, Jesus says, you know, everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deed should be exposed, but he who does the truth comes to the light. And we find ourselves drawn to the light. Delighted in the light, there is great encouragement that there is God at work. Fire, he says, to continue the analogy, doesn't stay still. It it spreads, you know. And so as we seek to have God's fire burning higher and hotter in us, we are warmed more and more, it consumes more of us. In other words, we we just can't remain as we are. Fire catches, fire spreads, and the fire of passion that God puts in us makes sure that we can't stay as we are. Seven, you know, fire makes metal pliable, just as God's grace makes the heart pliable, makes it soft. So when David went out to kill Nabal and all the men in his house, it was full of rage, and Abigail comes and reminds him of God's call to mercy and God's good purposes, he blesses her. And his heart is soft and impressionable by a word from the Lord. Eighth, fire catches other things alight. When you're on fire for God, you are eager for others to know him too. And God's fire makes us bold and passionate and eager to seek God's glory in the world and that others may rejoice with us. Nine, sparks fly upward, you know. And God's grace carries our hearts and thoughts and goals heavenward. So... Where the aim and bent of our soul is toward God, there is grace, he says, even though opposed. And finally, you know that when the fire gets going, it gives even more light and less and less smoke, and we can gain confidence that God is truly at work when we see that he is doing a good thing in us and will complete it until the day of Christ. Well, if I told you there was 10, I would have discouraged you perhaps, but 10 it is. Fire comes with light and heat, knowledge and emotion. It teaches us the way to walk and refines us. It draws us to itself and it spreads and it catches others alight and directs the sparks upward and is more and more a strong and pure light. These are the things which he says, given the mixture within us, we should expect. We can't expect too much. We should recognize if there's nothing at all. But 
Sibs wants to give some list to people that recognizes the fact of the mixture. But at the same time, he recognizes that such marks may still not help everyone. So if you're still struggling with assurance, what should you do? He says, you cast yourself in the arms of Christ, and if you perish, you perish there. I remember very clearly, as a, as a new believer, seeking the Lord and finding my heart dead as a doornail and my prayers bouncing off the ceiling day after day, week after week, and I did not know what to do. But I very, very clearly remember saying, God, I am going to sit outside your door, and if you will not open to me in mercy, I will die here. And it was about that time that I found the door opening. You need assurance? Well, there's some things that should mark every Christian. But you cast yourself into the arms of Christ, and if you perish, you perish there. And you will find that is a safe place for you. And shall your sins discourage you, Sibs asks, when Christ is at the throne of grace for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of comfort, he calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him, and do not take Satan's counsel. Go to Christ though trembling like the poor woman who said, if I could just touch his garment, we shall be healed and have a gracious answer. End quote. Do not fear to go to him since we have such a mediator who is not only our friend, but our brother and our husband. So point two, the marks of a Christian. If we are a mixture, we should expect to find a mixture. There is life and light and fire but there is smoke and coldness and deadness mixed in. But finally today, I'd like us to press on and consider the motivation of a Christian. The motivation of a Christian. Here we are. The good that we would do, we don't do. The evil we don't want to do, that we do. How are we going to go forward in such a state? Well, another writer first pointed out to me, when we sin, when you don't do what you're supposed to do, when you do what you're not supposed to do, you're sinning against the law. But when you refuse to go on and you get discouraged, you sin against the gospel. The gospel says that your sins, dark though they are, are under the blood of Christ. And that you, sinful, weak believer, are called to go on in your calling, knowing that Christ has appointed his victory in you, weak believer. And if you are finding your motivation only in your success, you are going to be disappointed. In fact, I would say doomed to failure, if not deceived. But when you find that your motivation is in Christ's success, behold my servant, he will not fail or be discouraged. When you find that the one who has already put your sins away raises you up and says, let us walk together onward, then you will thankfully go. Sibs notes how he bore with the imperfections of his poor disciples. And if he did sharply correct them, it was in love that they might shine the brighter. Now he says, if you look on God's commandment without the promise, you're going to despair. And if you look at the promise without the commandment, you're going to presume. 
But when you look at the promise and the commandment together, you will be humbled if you have sinned. But Christ will be more precious to you. And so I realize I'm quoting him a lot today. I need to put this more in my own terms. He is laboring to show his readers on every page that if you are relying upon your success for your success, it is a weak read indeed. When you see this merciful and mighty Christ in the wondrous grace of the gospel, who has taken away your sins and has called you onward, despite your mixture. When he is pleased to show his strength in your weakness, you can boldly go to the throne of grace to find new strength to serve him for your glory. And it will be Christ who makes the weak strong. You know, Bethlehem was one of the least cities of Judah. But because Christ was born there, it is not the least. The presence of Christ is what makes the difference. You know, this second temple was not very impressive so that the people who saw the first temple were weeping. But the prophet said, that second temple is going to have more glory than the first. You know why? Because Christ went there. His presence is what makes the difference. So you weak believer, you have a, a treasure in jars of clay. Well, that's so the excellency of the power may be from God and not of us. For his part, the Lord is not going to quench smoking flax until he brings forth justice for truth in you. And the Lord is choosing such weak people in order to employ them for his best work. Paul, Peter, these these people with notable failings are examples of the grace they taught. Christ came down from heaven, he writes, and emptied himself of majesty in tender love to souls. Shall we not come down from our high conceits and do good to any poor soul? Shall man be proud after God has been humble? This is a good God, brothers and sisters. He knows you. He has appointed that season of weakness for you in this life. Oh, I I hope there's progress. But it's a very uneven progress, isn't it? You know who will get the glory when a person like you does something of eternal significance? Knowing full well your sins and infirmities, he is pleased to call you and to bless you that the excellency of the power may be of him and not of you. You are a mixture, point one. You are marked by that mixture, point two, in every point. Your motivation is not found, therefore, in gazing at your navel, navel, right? But looking unto Jesus, your victor, your champion, the hero of this world and the hero of your story. You look to him, your weakness will be turned to strength. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, you say, well, Lord, if you could use sinners like them, maybe there's hope for me. Oh, yes, he says, my power will be made perfect in your weakness. And how can that weakness be turned to strength? You know, as Bunyan said, I found that the guilt of sin helped me a great deal. It made me abhor myself. It it made me stop trusting my own heart. It convinced me of my 
insufficiency of my righteousness. It showed me that I needed to flee to Jesus, made me pray to God and showed me that I needed to watch and be sober and provoked me to look to God in Christ, to help me, to carry me through this world. That's the spirit. That's the motivation. The more you look at that nasty old navel, the more discouraged you'll be. You can look later. Not right now. The more that you look unto Jesus, who was appointed for people like you to carry them through, to bless them and make them fruitful, the more than you say, I, I, I will go on today, and the Lord will be with me. That's the spirit. So in conclusion, brethren, in spite of our many sins and fears, we are called to go on boldly and to take our place among those who serve such a great God. Not the God of moralism. This demolishes moralism at its root. In all the saints, there is something reprehensible ever to be found. Your limping and imperfect faith is still approved by God. There is no reason why the faults that you labor under should break you down or dishearten you, provided you go on in the race of your calling. That's the truth. There's always smoke. There's always something reprehensible. But that divine fire is not of you. The fire of faith, no matter how halting and imperfect, it will not be quenched. He will tenderly nurse that flame. You look, look unto Jesus. Paul writes, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived. But one thing, one thing I do, listen, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if, if anything in you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk. Amen. Halting believer. So walk. Lay hold of him for which he has laid hold of you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, beautiful is your Son, our Savior. We confess that this picture that you have given to us of a smoking wick is, in truth, much better than we even deserve. We can confess with the Apostle that I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, that you have had mercy. And even as you have delighted to appoint your Son to be our hope, to be our life and strength, to carry us through dark days. We pray that through such mercy that our delight in him would overflow more and more, that the morning star would again rise anew in our hearts and we would have grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Enlarge our hearts for him that cannot satisfy 
that cannot but satisfy us in himself. Forgive us of our sins. Turn our weakness into strength. We pray that you would give us the sight of Christ, high and lifted up, that we may say, whom, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Ah, send me. I am such a man.